Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's Health Department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. It's Friday, so today's the day for listener questions and answers. Our respondent is one of our most popular question answerers, Dr. Amesh Adalja, senior scholar at the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He's also a physician trained in internal medicine, emergency medicine, infectious disease, and critical care. Let's listen. Dr. Adalja, thank you so much for joining me again. Let me just start with a general question. What have we learned recently about the novel coronavirus that um, is worth mentioning to our listeners? It seems like every day we learn a whole bunch of new things about it. So what we're, we're learning in the last several weeks or since the last time we spoke were that there are different ways that people get respiratory failure with this virus and it's not homogenous. So there are people in the ICU that you have to use very different strategies on and we're learning about that uh, on a day-to-day basis. We're also learning about that there may be a link between an inflammatory syndrome in children and this coronavirus. It hasn't been proven yet. It seems to be very rare but it's something that's uh, grabbing headlines right now because in general, children had been spared from mild disease. And now this is sort of putting that into somewhat in question, even though it it is still true that children do, as a whole, do really well. We're trying to understand whether or not there are some that are predisposed to have this uh, reaction to the virus. We're, We're learning about antiviral therapies that may have the benefit of getting people out of the hospital quicker. There was data coming from a trial on a drug called remdesivir, where it didn't change the mortality rate, but it did get people better about three to four days earlier. And that was a a positive result because it's the first antiviral we really have for coronavirus. So I think those are the big headlines that have been happening over the last several weeks on the virus. Great, thank you. Now I wanna turn to some questions we've gotten from our listeners at publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. When can I see my family again if I have been quarantining? So lots of people ask that question. And as an infectious disease physician, there's not a right or a wrong answer. And it's hard to be overly prescriptive about this. So it really has to do with your own risk tolerance and the risk tolerance of those individuals that you're going to visit. And there are going to be some people who are much more risk tolerant and some people who are not very risk tolerant. And you really have to look at What is your risk of getting a severe disease? What is your parents' risk of getting a severe disease? Can you do social distancing when you visit them? And it's going to be important that you wash your hands and and not touch your face. But I do think that you have to realize that this virus isn't going anywhere. In the absence of a vaccine, we're going to be dealing with this virus for maybe two years. So there has to come a time when people start to think about what risk is acceptable to them in their lives. And it's going to be different for each person. And I think you have to approach these types of situations in that manner, because this, this virus is going to have to be something you incorporated into your day-to-day life and, and thinking about what risks you're willing to take and which ones you're not. And that's going to depend on each person's hierarchy of values and what's essential to them and what's not essential to them. 
Got it. Now, of course, if someone's actually quarantining because they've been quarantined by the health department, they should wait until they're out of that quarantine. Is that right? Right. This is for health, healthy people that, that aren't infected with the virus or not being monitored because they were exposed to the virus. This is for the average person that, that doesn't have any link to the virus that you know of at this point. Is there any data on how COVID-19 is impacting people without spleens? And I guess this person is asking this question because we know from bacterial diseases, certain bacterial diseases, that uh, people without spleens can get very severe infections. So there, I've not seen any specific data on people without a spleen and how they fare with this virus. And I think it's an open question, but in general, we do think of people that, that don't have a spleen or whose spleen isn't functioning well as being immunosuppressed. So I would be more cautious with those individuals. I would have a higher threshold to, to be more aggressive with their care. And, and I think that those are people that we want to have social distancing a little bit more than the average person. Again, we don't know the data, and it might be that paradoxically people without a spleen, because so much of this happens because of immune, uh, immune system uh, overreaction to the virus, may actually have a different type of clinical course, but I don't think we have enough data right now. So the best approach, I think, with people without a spleen is to think of them as being uh, immunocompromised and being more careful with them. Can the virus travel to the lower lungs during deep breathing exercises, such as with yoga? I don't think there's any evidence that yoga breathing actually facilitates the virus going down into the deeper parts of your lung. Once you're infected with the virus, it's going to spread in your airways, and the way you breathe or don't breathe isn't really going to play much of a role, as far as I, as far as I know, with how far that virus goes down into your respiratory tree. Does a person's blood type affect how infectious or sick that person may become? We are definitely seeing some emerging data on blood types influencing how severely ill you get. And O blood type seems to be something that might be protective uh, against severe disease. This, again, is a correlation. It's not causation. And there's a lot of study that needs to be done before we can say this definitively. But it wouldn't be surprising because blood type does correlate with lots of other genetic things. And, and there may be some benefit to having a certain blood type with this virus. But again, it's too early to say that for sure, but there are some hints at it. Got it. I'm type A blood, so I follow those studies uh, a little bit. One of the primary contraindications for a massage therapist are blood clotting disorders and deep vein thrombosis. So we have a massage therapist who's wondering if a client is without symptoms but um, might have COVID, is there a risk of massage therapy potentially causing an embolism, heart attack, or stroke? I would say that we know that coronavirus patients are hypercoagulable, meaning that they, they have a tendency to make more clots. I don't know that we could say that massage therapy potentiates those clots. I, I don't know that there's enough data to say that. I would say that if you're a massage therapist and you have guidance about how to, to think about people with blood clots or clotting disorders, I would follow that in general with patients that are acutely ill, but you shouldn't really be massaging people that are acutely ill with the novel coronavirus anyway. They, those people should be at home isolating. So I think it's probably less of a concern, but it, understanding why people clot and how they clot and when they clot with the, the novel coronavirus is going to be an important thing going forward, but there's not a lot of data on how to change the other recommendations or how applicable those recommendations are to to coronavirus patients. Yeah, I think it would be certainly um, worth tracking if there were problems in people who are asymptomatic uh, through massage therapy, but I'm also not aware of any data about that at this point. All right, next question. 
Could you talk about the safety of discharging a patient with COVID-19 from a hospital to a home that has other members of the family that are high risk for COVID-19? Would it be better to discharge them somewhere else until they were completely, you know, fully recovered in order to protect the people at home? So this is an important question, and it's not just about discharging people to home. We're having problems discharging people to nursing homes, to rehab centers, to uh, hospice uh, because of this risk. So what ideally you want to do is discharge someone who's non-infectious to other people. And this can be challenging because maybe you're still infectious when you get discharged, or maybe you don't have the and, and you don't have the ability to isolate so well in your house. So there are hospitals coming up with novel plans uh, with their health departments, renting hotel rooms for people to fully recover until they're rendered non-infectious. And I think that's the best way to think about this is when you have people at home that are at risk and you can't do isolation very well in your house and you, you think this person is still infectious, then I think alternative places to go like hotels for a period of time until someone is deemed non-infectious are the best way to do this because we don't want to keep these people in the hospital for a, for a long time because they're at risk for other complications and we, we want to keep hospital capacity as open as possible. So I do think using other places are the best way to go forward when we have these situations. Great. Um, next question is about COVID toes. Is there a relationship between toe discoloration and blood clotting? Yes. This is, again, back to that idea that people with coronavirus have this ability to, to form clots at a higher rate than the average person. And one of the places where you can get clots can be in the small blood vessels that supply your toes. And that's what's responsible for these COVID toes, that discoloration that you see where they look purplish because they're being deprived of blood flow. Are women taking oral contraceptives more at risk for blood clotting um, from COVID? And I, I think the question is based in part because there is an elevated risk of clotting just from the oral contraceptives. Yeah, so I would think that, that COVID will synergize with whatever other propensity you have to get clots. So if you're on birth control pills and you get COVID, you're probably more likely than the average person that's not on birth control pills from getting it. So I think this is something that needs to be more studied, that we need to come up with guidance for what to do with women, for example, who are on birth control pills and they get sick, if they should maybe stop those birth control pills or use an alternative method of birth control during that period of time. I think this is an important question that needs to be answered. Okay, just a few more questions. You doing okay? Yeah. All right, great. Okay. Is there a reason that vigorous use of soap and water for 20 seconds or even a minute would work on human hands but not on other surfaces, such as the kitchen, the bathroom, doorknobs, and light switch covers? The person writes, I ask because disinfectants are in short supply. In other words, could you wash the doorknob for 20 seconds or a minute in soap and water to get rid of coronavirus? I suspect you probably could. There's probably not data on it. It's just that soap using a, a bar of soap or something like that might be logistically hard on a doorknob. But this is a, a fragile virus that doesn't take a lot to, to inactivate it. So I, I, don't, I don't think that there's probably any difference in doing that. Obviously, it's easier if you have a, a disinfectant that you can easily apply to these surfaces, but it really should work just the same if you can do it with the same type of uh, rigor. Yeah, we're using a very dilute bleach solution, which is, um, I think, 1 to 10. And so you don't have to necessarily buy a commercial disinfectant. Can you get COVID-19 from secondhand smoke? No, I don't think you can get COVID-19 from secondhand smoke. Obviously, if someone is smoking a cigarette and coughing at the same time, that, that smoke could have it. But just secondhand smoke, per se, on its own, uh, no, 
I, I don't think that there's a biological mechanism for, for the, how that virus would be in the smoke without someone actually putting it in the smoke. This is, again, a question that we received at public health question at jhu.edu. This is not a question for me, but here is the question. My wife has tested positive for antibodies to the coronavirus, and I am negative. How is that possible? We're living together 24-7. So there's a couple of things. We know that antibody tests right now have varying specificity, and that there are going to be some that, that are giving false positive results. Because remember, this is the seventh human coronavirus we've discovered, and four of them cause about 25% of our common colds. So some may cross-react. So I want to know what brand of test the person had. Is it one of the ones? that's been recommended to have very high specificity, and there are probably maybe about a half dozen or so of those, and there's some that have poor specificity. I wanna know that first. I wanna know, were you, you and your wife, were you both ill? Did you actually have symptoms, or were the antibody test just done to see if you were exposed? And it's just important to remember that, that the tests themselves have limits of detection, and they can vary. I would just want to know exactly what the operating characteristics of the tests are, if, if that's the case. So it could be a problem with the tests, or it could be that one person didn't get the infection. Right. Last question. We just learned the term social distancing, and now we're all learning the term social distancing fatigue. What do you think about social distancing fatigue, and uh, what's the danger of that, and what do you tell people to avoid it? It's, it's a simple fact that people are going to get tired of doing this. This is not natural for people to do, and the longer you do it, the more likely people are to become intolerant of it. I think it's important to remember that it's the only tool we have against this virus right now. And, and it's a simple biological fact that when you increase social interaction, you give the virus more opportunity to spread from person to person. And I think that people are still going to have to take precautions as best as they can, so long as we're living with this virus. And I think there are ways to be able to try and modify your social distancing to minimize the risk, but nothing is going to be completely risk-free because the virus is there. And I definitely sympathize with social distancing fatigue. And I think if I weren't going to the hospital, it would be much more difficult to, to cope with things. But I'm going to the hospital and around my friends and colleagues, that, that makes it much easier. But not, not a lot of people have that, that ability because maybe they're all working from home. And I think this is going to be a real thing we have to think about as we move forward because the virus is, like I said, not going to disappear. And we've got to find a way to come up with a sensible way to deal with this risk. And, and social distancing is, is going to be part of it, but it's, it's not an easy question to answer, I, I would say. Yeah, um, it's uh, important to recognize that social distancing fatigue exists, but also come up with ways to counter it. Otherwise, we'll wind up with a whole lot of coronavirus infections. So, Dr. Adalja, that brings us to the end of our questions this week. I really appreciate your time. Sure, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Public Health on Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharfstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen-McCusker and Spencer Greer, with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.